Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I think the reason I was set off on this path is because when most people hear about climate change for the first time, they think of wildfires and droughts and really scary things, and it can be very doomsday dark. I had the opposite experience where I saw this beautiful way of living in a very sustainable way. And so I like to say that I kind of saw the solution before I fully understood the problem. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, Mom. Good morning, Emma. So you have been traveling, and I know you're such a good traveler, a sustainable road tripper. (laughs) So do you have anything to share with us today about that? Yeah, I do. I have some little hacks. Nothing really dramatic. They might seem kind of obvious, but I'll tell you, you know, we're always saying on here, even the tiniest little shifts in habits and behavior can make a big difference sometimes. And I'm down in Tennessee taking care of some family matters. It's about a seven, eight hour road trip. And if I plan correctly and I fill my tank up with gas before I come, then I don't have to stop for gas. So that means the only thing you have to stop for is water, food, and taking a break. 
So what I do is I get my a little box that I put in the passenger seat that will keep everything from falling over, but it's really, really easy to reach. So I can safely reach for my mason jar of water, my iced tea. I make that before I go, make it all delicious. So I feel like I'm having a little treat on the road and some little snacks. It's just stuff that's really easy to reach over and nibble, like, you know, nuts and dried fruit and so forth. And maybe sometimes some little pieces of chocolate or something. <laughs> fun. So I'm on the road and I don't have to worry about stopping for gas, which that means I don't have to stop at these places where, you know, it's just inundated with all the plastic water bottles and the snacks and the packaged things and the single use plastic drinks and smoothies and all that sort of stuff and the straws. So don't even have to see any of that because I'm stopping at the rest stops. I know in Virginia, they have all kinds of beautiful rest stops that are situated in very scenic places and they often have a walking path around them. And so you can take your break. You can take a little walk. You can look at good scenery. You can get fresh air. There's nothing to buy there. They do have vending machines, but there's nothing to tempt you, you know, like the coffee machine or anything like that. And so what ends up happening is I can go the whole way. I don't get hungry or thirsty because I already have my stuff in the car and I don't end up with a car full of trash by the time I get to my destination. I find that there's less stress. It's just more pleasant. Mm. It just seems like a way to make the trip a little less intense. That's so interesting that taking out the the factor of even just walking into the place where you're surrounded by all the stuff to buy. It's interesting to watch like as consumer behavior, like, yeah, do you really want the thing or you just have to go to the bathroom and on the way to the bathroom, you see the thing and makes you want it. I think that's a big factor. And also, I think maybe we don't appreciate how stressful those places are. You know, they're crowded. Mm -hmm. The harsh lighting. Yeah. And I, I love the way those rest stops, at least the ones in Virginia, I can't speak for other states to know what mm -hmm. the standard is, but they have plenty of parking. You just sail right in and get out. And it's just a whole different experience from yeah. walking into a truck stop or a gas station, all of that. So let's say you are going on a longer trip and maybe mm -hmm. you need to stop for a meal. Yeah. What are your go-tos? Are there any places that you would drive through and get something or what are your go-tos? That's harder because road food is fast food, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I try to identify some place where I want to go in and sit down and yeah. like have a meal with a little bit of thought and a planning and as always awareness and intention about you know what mm -hmm. you're trying to accomplish. For me, I am trying to take away some of the stress of being on the highway all day. Yeah. And these are the ways I've found to do it. And um, yeah, like to your point, Emma, about a meal, sometimes you do need to stop for a meal. And for me, rather than going into a fast food place and all that's involved in that, try to identify wherever you are in your region, a place where you can go and sit down and get a meal that you yeah. find satisfactory and um, or even good. Maybe there's a local chain or something in your part of the country that you like to stop at, but in planning and plan for that 45 minutes or an hour off the road. Yeah. And even not even a chain. Like if you have the time to go off a little farther into the local restaurant, there's a couple of restaurants we like to stop at too that are not chains. So that's always fun too. Right. When you're on an interstate, it's harder to find those, harder to know yeah. they are, but you know, maybe do a little research ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as we enter into the time of year and people are traveling more and going on vacation, maybe these things might help a little bit. Yeah. And we just love hearing from you guys. We have an email address you can write into. 
thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we also just got a phone number. And the reason I'm bringing this up in general is because we want to hear about your road trips and how you can create less trash on them and the sustainability of them. So if you have more ideas or you take a road trip and you enact any of these ideas, let us know, thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. We are nearing our 100th episode. We recently crossed our 100,000 download mark, which is so exciting for us. And as we've said, we're so grateful for all of you who've really helped us create this community and who write in with your thoughts and ideas. So as part of our getting to this 100th episode mark, which is really huge for us, we have a few ideas. We have enacted a few new things. So number one, you can call us and leave us a voicemail. The number is 443-459-1950. That number will be in the show notes. We'll make it really easy to find. But you can call us and leave any questions that you have, and we will play your voicemail over the air. So it's like having you on the podcast. If you don't have any questions, you just want to share your thoughts or give a shout out, that works too. Yes. So we want your voice to be in here with us. So we will have that as a way for you to engage. Also, if you don't want your question shouted out over the airwaves in your voice, <laughs> then you can write to us at thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. So those are two ways that you can write in and call in. If you call in with a question throughout the month of June, we will be taking all of our callers and entering them in for a drawing for a free slow living consult. So we gave away a slow living consult earlier in the spring to one of our listeners. And it was so fun. We chatted all about just we kind of did a little audit of everything she's got going on. And she said, this is where I'm feeling stressed and like I'm not doing this well enough and I need to slow down here. And we just talked through it. And it was so, so fun. So we want to be doing that again for more of you. So if you call in with a question or an idea or a shout out, you have the chance to win a free slow living consult with us. So this is all throughout the month of June. We're running this. And the other fun thing is that you will be on the podcast. You'll have a whole episode of chatting with us about slow living. So we're really excited about this and we can't wait yeah. to meet more of you. I can't wait to see how this voicemail thing goes. I'm excited about it. Literally hearing from our listeners. <laughs> yeah. We're really excited about the technology. It's just so cool. Yeah. You can leave us a voicemail. <laughs> yeah. So the number is 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. And it's also in the show notes. This reminds me of uh, when I was a teenager and you were listening to your favorite radio show and you wanted to call in a song request. Yeah. <laughs> they would keep giving you the phone number. So, so that's 443-459-1950. <laughs> yeah. What a throwback. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. So on to the episode, Emma. What do you think? Yeah. So... We are so excited to introduce Lizzie Horvitz. She started Finch, which is a company that helps people like you and me decode sustainability and make, quote unquote, doing better a more accessible choice. So this is really when we're online shopping and you're looking at products, you know, for whatever you need. And you're like, is this sustainable? I don't know. And you're reading the description. and You're like, what does that mean? And you see all the certifications and stuff. And it's a lot. It's a lot to code. So Lizzie's going to tell us all about that. But just for a sample, if you go to the website, 
choosefinch.com, you'll see a tab for wise guides. And this immediately brings up all kinds of categories for products that we all consume regularly. Things like personal care, kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, all that. And underneath those tabs, you'll find all kinds of amazing information on the basics of how to choose the more sustainable products within those categories. Things like what to be wise on, like what to look for, factors to consider, like fragrances and ingredients and all of that, certifications to look for, what kind of packaging they use. And then they sum it all up for you in a few concise takeaways. And then you're way more equipped to go on to Amazon or go wherever you go to shop and have the information you need to make these decisions. Yeah. So taking that further, Finch is also a web browser plugin. So you can go on the website and read the guides that's accessible all the time. You can also download a plugin, which if you don't know about a web browser plugin extension, Lizzie explains about it a little bit in the episode, but you can download it completely free for you to use. And it's awesome. Finch says that understanding the science of sustainability gives control back to you as a citizen and not just as a consumer. They aim to prove that sustaining the planet and society doesn't mean sacrificing your personal wants and needs, which is so cool because so much of, I think, when we think about sustainability and being more green, it's a little bit of a like, ugh, I have to like do this thing or I have to buy this thing and I can't do this and I can't do that. Who has time to do all that research? Yeah. <laughs> and Guess what? <laughs> Like we're trying to do on this podcast is say it's not about that. It's actually can be more fun and more enriching and more life-giving. And also Finch is saying, no, you actually can buy things if you want them. And here's how to buy better. So yeah, this episode is packed with information and guidelines to help you decode the barrage of information out there when you're trying to make better choices for your personal health and the health of all of us and all living things as we navigate all of these environmental pressures and climate change and all of these things we're trying to consider. So here's Lizzie Horvitz of Finch. I am Lizzie. I started Finch two years ago, which helps decode products' environmental impacts to help consumers make better purchasing decisions. So we like to think of ourselves as what NerdWallet did for personal finance we are doing for sustainability. So when I was 16, I was lucky enough to live off the grid for three months in the Bahamas. And that was run by wind generators, solar panels. All of our fuel came from the Princess K cruise ships. They're like leftover vegetable oil. And if you remember back then, this was 2004. And obviously people knew about climate change, but it was not discussed to the extent that it is today. And I think the reason I was set off on this path is because when most people hear about climate change for the first time, they think of wildfires and droughts and really scary things, and it can be very doomsday dark. I had the opposite experience where I saw this beautiful way of living in a very sustainable way. And so I like to say that I kind of saw the solution before I fully understood the problem. And so really since 16, I have been dedicating my career towards trying to mitigate climate change. And in the past, I would say 10 years, I've really been focused on how to do that in the private sector. Awesome. And how do you do that in the private sector? You had a great, a brilliant little clip right there at the beginning, but I don't even know what decoding and like, what does that mean? And how does that happen? 
Great question. So I was working at Unilever. I was in their supply chain team, and then I shifted to their sustainability team, which was fantastic because if you think of the products that Unilever has, you know, it's Axe Body Spray, Dove Soap, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, things that are in every household almost. And they do a lot of work behind the scenes on sustainability. And I would say the majority of the people that buy their products don't even know that they're making a good choice for the environment. And so I really wanted to understand how a company like that accomplished this. You know, people buy Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream because it's delicious, not because they're doing great things for climate justice, etc. And so the supply chain experience was really enlightening, but then I shifted to their sustainability team. And that was when things became really interesting because in my personal life, I began to get a ton of questions from family and friends about how they could reduce their carbon footprint. So, you know, I just had my first baby. What type of diaper should I buy? Or what is this ingredient doing in my deodorant? Is it safe? Is it going to give me cancer, et cetera? And I had no idea where to look and find these answers. I felt like the internet had, you know, these academic papers or life cycle analyses, which are really tough to sift through, even for someone like me who has a deep background in this space. And then on the other side, you have this rise of bloggers who are saying things like eco-friendly, all natural, but those don't mean anything. And so I was striving to find this like middle ground of something that was easily accessible, but based in real data. And I couldn't find that. And so I started a newsletter and that was sort of a monthly newsletter where I would choose a different topic. And then I left Unilever to go work for a startup. I was lucky enough to be chief operating officer of that company and just completely fell in love with entrepreneurship. I loved taking a company from inception to scale or an idea from inception to scale, rather. I loved my day-to-day, -day, my lifestyle, et cetera. And I thought after about a little over a year, I realized this newsletter could actually be a full-time job. And so that's kind of how Finch was born, where we started as just this resource center content. And then as of, I would say, the last six months, we've shifted into really a data and technology company where we scrape information on the internet for what makes a product sustainable. So let's look at shampoo, for example. Okay, it's 20% the packaging and 80% the ingredients that make it really either sustainable or unsustainable. And then we look for shampoo brands for what we can find on the internet and we give them a score between one and 10 using a machine learning model. And then we have this extension where when you're shopping online, you look up, say, Pantene Pro-V and you'll see, okay, that gets a score of a seven. There are better products out there. Let's see what's an eight, nine, or 10 and then make a different decision. So it's really just a quick and simple way for consumers to be equipped with the knowledge that they deserve to make informed decisions. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And quick commercial, like how does someone get this and what does that entail? So you just go to choosefinch.com. You can download our extension. It's a Chrome extension. So it, fortunately right now it only works on Chrome and it only works on Amazon. That obviously will expand over time. Okay. And you just download it. If you've heard of Honey or Grammarly or any of these other things, extensions are, you know, some populations use it regularly. Some have no idea what that is. And so for those who are I think we're all represented here. Yeah, exactly. No shame, mom. Yeah, yeah no shame. <laughs> I barely know what it was before I started Finch. Yeah. You download it to your desktop. And then what's great about it, unlike an app, so I'm sure all of us understand, you download it to something on your phone and you might use it once, but then you never remember that it's there. So I have like 20 apps on my phone that I never use. The beauty of the extension is that it stays on your desktop so that 
every single time you go to Amazon, it pops up and it's like, hey, I'm here. Here's the score. So you don't have to go to a separate website, a separate app, anything. It's just what we wanted to do is really integrate it into your daily shopping habits. Wow. So does that mean that it only shows up for the products that you have gone in and investigated and researched and are able to come up with a score? Is that your company coming up with those scores or does that come from another source? It's our company coming up with the scores using existing source sources. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel at all. Uh-huh. Um, there are a lot of fantastic companies that have done incredible work so far, mostly actually NGOs, less companies, but like the Environmental Working Group, for example, yeah. is an amazing place to go for ecotoxicity, human health. EWG is not going to go into packaging, for instance, or the waste impact. And so what we do is we'll take certain data points from EWG, from B Corp certifications. We have, oh my gosh, hundreds of data sources. And then we aggregate all of that together using our special weightings. And we put that through a machine learning model. So to your question, Mary, we're not going in and saying, okay, what is Pantene Pro-V? Let's read all about it. Let's give that a unique score. That would take, I mean, not be scalable. So we have this basically this model that can automatically scrape and give products a score so that we're not manually doing that. The manual work we do is upfront where we do a lot of digging on what is this category overall saying? What are their impacts and how should these products be weighted? But then we're just scraping Amazon details pages and uh, several other sources for that like mass score research. And you do this product by product? Product category by product category. So we have have 85 categories rated ranging from sheets and mattresses to diaper rash cream everything in between. Mostly sheets and mattresses were sort of an anomaly, but they're mostly quick personal care consumer products that people buy relatively often, Mm -hmm. toilet paper, paper towels, things like that. And then within those 85 categories, we're constantly sort of like improving and expanding the product base that we've rated. So at this point of the 85 categories, we've rated a little over 200,000 products. Which sounds like a lot, but when you think of how many products are on Amazon, we have a very long way to go. And then beyond Amazon, obviously. Wow. I'm really amazed. And what you're describing is something that I don't think many people do this, but we've been doing this for a few years in all of our podcast interviews and our work with Lady Farmer. You're describing something I do for myself. When I want something, I'll go to EWG. I'll comb the Amazon description. If there's some weird thing, ingredient there that I don't know what it is, I'll try to Google around and find out what that is. And so what you're describing to me is just incredible. It's amazing. I want it. I want the extension like right now. (laughs) Well, that's so, it's such an awesome point, Mary, because when we do customer segmentation, we learn so much about people like you who Mm -hmm. are willing to do that research because you really live and breathe sustainability. And this, all this does is just saves you time, right? It's just like, we've already done the work. If we can gain your trust, you can just look and see the quick score. And if you want, you can go into the details of how we've rated it. We're happy to share that, but you Mm -hmm. don't have to spend. I mean, sometimes it takes days to figure out like, okay, well, this website saying this ingredient does this, but this one says this. It's really complicated. Yeah. But then there's a whole segment of people who are not as amazing as you are, who believe in climate change, but don't have the time, you know, they're not willing to spend an extra no. seven, and like more than seven minutes online researching this stuff. So for them right now, their solution is not to do what you do. Their solution is just to give up and to say like, okay, this is cheapest. I can't even begin to think about the sustainability footprint. So that's really our main demographic is people who would love to have this as a solution, but just like have too many other things going on. And so this just gives them 
the autonomy and, and abilities to be able to do that, which is great. Yeah. Or a lot of it even is, and what we found in our work is people just don't even know like what questions to ask or they don't right. want to ask the questions because it's like so daunting. Exactly. And then the other thing that's difficult that we're grappling with every single day is there's misinformation out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do we feed into what people really want to know about versus teaching them what they should mm-hmm. care about, if that makes sense. So like yes. I think of plastic straws, like Yes, plastic straws are can be bad. They end up in turtles' noses. I'm a huge animal lover. I hate seeing that. But like that's really not a huge problem in the big scheme of things. It's been like this pariah for sustainability. Mm-hmm. And so we have some unpopular views that's like, yes, metal straws are a great replacement, but in order to you to get the most out of your metal straw from a climate perspective, you need to use that metal straw almost every single day for a year to pay it off from a climate standpoint. If you're only using a plastic straw once a week, that's probably better than buying a metal straw given the carbon footprint because- That is so crazy. The chances of that aluminum being made and being detrimental are 100%. The chances of that plastic straw ending up in the ocean are only one in seven. So those are the types of things that are a little unpopular, but we're just trying to give people the truth about this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love this. We love nuance here on the podcast. So (laughs) I think that's a great segue into another question I was going to ask about. You mentioned a few minutes ago that sort of y'all's day-to-day work, uh, like the human type work on the front is this front end consumer facing. How do we find these categories and explain them? And what questions are we asking? And what are we talking about? So can you talk a little bit more about that? And how do you guys sort of navigate this nuance? And how do you know what to do and what to talk about? It's a really important question. And I always like to say, you know, we are two years only, exactly two years into the company. And we're really only, I would say, 10 months into really digging deep on this machine learning data world, which means that we're a small team. And so there are resource constraints on our side. And then there are data constraints, meaning like, my colleague, Mark, who's our head of sustainability, is reading papers that came out two months ago only. Like mm-hmm. science is evolving every single minute, right? And so what I always like to say is right now the scoring system does not entail every single factor that it should. And we're mm-hmm. really open about that because that would be impossible. You know, for example, we know that microplastics are a really important thing to focus on. Microplastics are relatively new in the scientific world, and we don't have that information yet. And so on our website, we're very clear about these are the things we've already incorporated and these are the things that we eventually will incorporate but have not been able to yet for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So when you start at that base level, it makes it a little bit easier to say like, yes, this might be a different score if this other thing were incorporated. But we're finding that we're a better option than anything that's out there currently. And so people are willing to sort of stick with us Mm -hmm. and hold out. But we, we have this brilliant PhD, Mark, who literally like has studied green chemistry and climate for the past decade. And he really determines what data sources we should be looking at and how to think about these products. And actually, we're not really doing it individually. We're breaking them by individual category. We're breaking them up by larger categories. So we have textiles, which would be like sheets, mattresses, things like that. We have paper products, toilet paper, paper towels, etc. We have ingredient-based products, which are more like things that come in bottles, shampoo, conditioner, detergent, things like that. So we have around six to eight of those larger categories. And within those, we figure out what these 
mixes are. Wow. I want to go back to something that you said in the beginning. You said most people associate climate change with, you know, the droughts and the fires and, you know, they want to talk about it on a macro level. But I think what's exciting about what you're doing is really um, giving people the idea that they're choices on their products that they use every day are actually impacting climate change. I think that's something that a lot of people don't really want to go there because of what you're just describing. It's too dense. There's too much information you don't know. And when you hear that, okay, you know, this shampoo, the ingredients might be okay. There's carcinogenics in it and all this stuff. But geez, this plastic thing is going to be there for thousands of years. And exactly. People just, they can't handle all that. I mean, they just, or they don't want to deal with it. They can't. Life is busy. I get it. And since I do this work, as you said, I kind of immerse myself in it. And I want to make those personal decisions for me. But that is a long way from everybody. That's a long way from the mass consciousness, I guess I should say, the collective consciousness on this. So, and, you know, we talk about clothes a lot and how people are so attached to the idea that they would love to be sustainable in their clothing, but they can't afford it. That's Mm -hmm. a, a big thing we hear a lot. And that is totally valid. But when they have information, this is my belief, when people really have information about the effects of things, the human rights effects, the global effects, the personal health effects, then they really start to shift in their decision making. Completely. Oh my gosh, there's so much that I want to speak to with what you just said. I think first of all, what is really fun for us is I actually, I think uniquely invested a lot in the branding and visuals of Finch before I really needed to. And I remember thinking like, shouldn't I be investing in like a team or data or things like that? But it ended up paying off so much because it set the company up in a very different direction, which is when you look at our competitive landscape, we have all these other companies who are dark green and they're guilt ridden and they're like, this is a serious thing that we really need to focus on. And if you don't do your part, the world is going to end. And that does not move the needle for literally anybody, even for people (laughs) who are like extremely, extremely passionate about this. Like, Nobody wants to do something because if they don't, they'll feel guilty about it. People want to do something because it's a better experience, right? And so our whole vibe is bright and colorful and like we can all do our part. And what we always say is like we don't need 100 people doing zero waste perfectly. We need a thousand people doing a little bit. We're always about like progress, not perfection. Everybody can do their part and I think – it's a disservice to the environmental community when people start making other people feel guilty about their choices. And that's the best way to make someone be like, I'm out. I don't care because you guys are making me feel guilty. So I think that's a really, really important point. And I think when people don't want to think about their personal choice, a lot of it is also like, well, why is this going to make a difference if West Virginia is still run completely on coal, right? And our energy grid is so dirty and, what's happening in Russia right now. Like there's so many like global factors that go into this. And I am the first one to say that climate change is going to be solved in a million different directions. Mm -hmm. If there were one way to fix climate change, we probably would have already found it and we would only be doubling down on that. So there has to be things that you can give normal everyday people that is not just Mm -hmm. like, Oh, every two years. Right. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. There's so much more. And so we also think that even if one person changing their shampoo brand, of course that's not going to move the needle on a global sort of scale, but a lot of people doing that absolutely will. It will start incentivizing these companies to be better, to Mm -hmm. make better products because people will demand that because they're equipped with this knowledge. And then also 
once this sort of seeps into your everyday life, you're more likely to vote on these issues and to do things differently that will have those global implications. So it's all sort of this domino effect that we think is really positive and it goes so beyond like choosing one shampoo over the other. Oh my gosh. And you bring up something else. When you were working at Unilever, you said that there are companies out there that are doing behind the scenes a research and decision making for sustainability. And I was so glad to hear that because you never hear that. You always hear about how the, you know, all they care about is the bottom line and blah, blah, blah. So it's really good to hear that that really is happening. And I'm wondering why not those companies talk about it more. That's almost like the opposite of greenwashing. You have companies that are giving fake environmental Mm -hmm. marketing, but then you have these companies that are doing it, like really doing it. And I want to hear about it. You're totally right. Well, I think Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever, did a really fantastic job with that. In 2009, he really flipped this whole game on its head. And he said, we're not going to worry about short-term profits anymore. We're only going to look at long-term because in the long-term, we are losing millions of dollars because of climate impacts. And that's not going into these like quarterly earnings reports. Mm. And so that was a real shift. And that's when the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan came out. And I would argue that that was really the first thing of its kind, where now, however many, it's been like almost 15 years later, all these other companies are figuring out like, how can we do what Unilever did at that scale, right? Small companies, they're more nimble, they can do different types of things. But for a large company, like a behemoth of a company to to accomplish that was had to come from the top down. Um, And so I, I think he did do a really good job at that. And I'm of the mindset that I'm a pessimist in this way. I don't think we'll ever get to a place where people are all buying locally and being plastic free and completely changing their lives, people will always buy Dove soap, right? They'll always use Axe body spray. And so if we can make that as good as possible, that's the key. And I do think, you know, the jury is still out at what percentage of consumers actually are willing to switch on this. So I think for millennials, for boomers, for people above the age of, let's say, like 24, it didn't always have a return. And so these companies were just doing it and they, they would talk about it in their sustainability reports, but they would just be doing it. Gen Z is completely changing the game because they're the first, you know, age bracket that's saying like, no, we're demanding this and we demand transparency. And I think that that's forcing a lot of companies to be like, okay, we really need to figure this out about how we talk about it. The other thing that's interesting is that companies are publicly disclosing all this information. It just might not be in the marketing way that that it's happening because, you know, there aren't companies that are like using organic cotton that's got certified and not broadcasting it. And we've actually had some interesting conversations with brands that say like, you know, we're paying for carbon offsets, but we don't think consumers care. So we're not going to mention it. And we're like, that is your problem. Mm -hmm. That's silly. And transparency is always the first step. So if you don't Mm want to talk about it, like that's, that's on you. And we actually give companies points for being transparent because the only information we're allowed, we're able to use is ones that have been publicly available because otherwise companies could come to us and say a whole bunch of stuff that we're not, not able to vet. So we depend on this information that is publicized. And if companies are not doing that, they're shooting themselves in the foot, in my opinion. Like there's no reason yeah. not to. I have not worked for a large corporation, so I don't have that inside view, but I would imagine from what I do know about marketing 
that at these bigger companies, you just have a certain demographic that has certain things. And if environmental transparency isn't in that set, then you're not going to design a campaign around that just because you think it would be cool. I mean, I agree with you, Lizzie. I think it's silly, but how that might just sort of get looked over for some reason. And I think just quickly on that, yeah, what I've noticed, I've really only worked at Estee Lauder and Unilever as far as like large companies. So this is not based in a whole lot of data points. But what I found is that you have the top management who can be preaching this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have people who are just out of college or, or graduate school who are in their 20s and really, really passionate about this as well. But it's that middle management bracket, the people in like, you know, I would say maybe 40 to 55 who are really moving the company. They're the ones who mm -hmm. have autonomy and who are making decisions on a daily basis, whatever. And for a lot of those people, they're coming in at all different levels. They're just trying to like, they've maybe worked there for 20 years. They're trying mm -hmm. to just like go in and do their job and get out. They're not trying to like mm -hmm. change things drastically. So you really need to find ways to get that middle group bought in through mm -hmm. like actual measurable KPIs that are tied to sustainability because otherwise they're like, this has worked for 15 years and mm -hmm. I don't have the time or the energy to switch this around. So I think you're totally right. There's probably strategic decisions that make people not want to do it. But I think it's also like you need all those levels to be bought in in a fundamental way. Yeah, that makes sense. So you were talking about how the decision was made from the top down in some of these companies to sort of redirect things for the long term benefit and that's so surprising to me because I would think they would want to like shout it from the mountaintops how they're making decisions that are going to benefit the climate. But as you explained it, and the more I think about it, if people can only absorb so much information and these people have to decide what messages they initially want to get across that maybe that's not top priority at this point. But having said that, have I got that kind of right? You know, yes. And that's, that's I think, what I said. But now that yeah. I think about it, I think they did publicize it a lot because from my personal experience, I wanted to work at Unilever starting probably in the beginning of graduate school. So 2013, this was like four years after they announced this Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. That is the only way that I knew about it. I wasn't like in some special group who was getting access to this data, but I, I was learning that like, the, wow, this big company is one of the only ones out there. So I think there was a level maybe just like in the CPG world mm -hmm. that yeah. was like really publicizing it. But you're right. To the normal community, it probably wasn't known. Yeah. Okay. And that's amazing to me that someone would be using GOT certified organic cotton and not talking about it and not being transparent about it. That's amazing to me because that's our world. You know, we tell people choose organic cotton, but our customer base is just a sliver of what's out there. But I was going to say that like in the last couple of weeks, there's been even more research about the effect of microplastics. I mean, you probably saw the article that now they've discovered it in the bloodstream of most of us. Mm -hmm. That's kind of new. And then, I mean, in that article, just in the last few weeks. So how long until this information is going to really get out there? I mean, that's to me, that's pretty alarming. How long until they begin saying no more microplastics, you know, kind of like the smoking thing. I mean, that snowballed it really slowly. And then all of a sudden, no more cigarettes, you know, how far are we right. from that away from that with microplastics and how fast can companies shift? I mean, Oh my gosh, that's everything. <laughs> Microplastics are everything. Completely. And I just read something that said that we consume a credit card worth of plastic every week. Yes. You and I read the same article. It's probably the same study. Yes. Exactly. Which is terrifying. And oh man, I think that's the million dollar question. I think there are so many things about this 
lifestyle that need to be switched. But because of, I would guess, like lobbies and different regulations and things like that just make it really, really difficult. The EU is significantly farther ahead on all of this than we are in the US. And so I always look to the EU to figure out like, well, what have they already done to figure out what might be coming down the pipeline in the next five to 15 years for the United States. I don't know, to be honest, what they've done about microplastics, but it's so tricky because plastic is also a real life-saving material, right? Like it changed the way that hospitals operated and it's not even like making it convenient to buy food and things like that. Like plastic is the lifeblood of this world as we see it right now, whether we like it or not. And so I think a lot of things will have to change to start figuring out sort of alternative materials. But I, I have no idea. It's a really good question. I do think that health is moving the needle more than anything else. Like I think as much as we like to talk about like biodiversity loss and climate refugees in the small islands in the Pacific and all of those factors, like what really moves the needle is being like, this could be really unhealthy for you and your children. And the more we do that, the more I think leverage we have to actually change the regulations around this. Wow. Yeah. It makes me think that someone out there could really be doing research on alternatives. Uh, and I'm sure somebody is like, are there any alternatives to plastics down the pipe? And I know, having said that, there are many different kinds of plastics. And some of them may be worse than others. And the whole world of information, I don't know. But you know, you hear about, oh, someone's inventing something that'll decompose the plastic. I mean, they've discovered an organism that'll eat it. Or is there anything like that really going on? Or is that just fake? <laughs> no, I think there's, um, there's actually like, Seaweed and algae are both really, really promising oh. to be put into technologies, I guess, for alternative plastics. There's a cool straw company called Lollyware, which feels exactly like a plastic straw, but I think is made out of seaweed, which is really, really awesome. And you can reuse it a couple of days, but then you throw it away and it completely decomposes. For me, and this is completely personal, this has nothing to do with the data that's out there, I don't think, but I'm actually more concerned with the fact that plastic is made from petroleum, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. that it lasts forever. So for me, it's more like single use plastic is just such a stupid way to operate anything, mm -hmm. yeah. frankly. And so if it's going to be made from petroleum, we better make sure that it can be used to its last drop, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I always like to make sure that plastic can either be reused, it's strong enough to be reused, or it's post-consumer recycled. And that means that it's, you know, not coming straight from petroleum. It's from plastic that was already used and could be given a second life. And so I'm all about circularity. I think that that's really promising. The problem with that is that those big companies, even for them, it's tough the to facility? get enough of it. Not yeah. even the facilities. It's like the raw materials themselves, there's a shortage of them. And so, and it, I guess it has to do with the facilities. If there were more facilities, there would be more. But, you know, these small companies, I talked to some brands that are just starting, for example, and they're saying, we really want our packaging to be post-consumer recycled, but we don't have the buying power for these people. And we're getting mm -hmm. outbeat by the PNGs of the world or the Unilevers of the world, frankly. So I think that's a real problem. If that could be scaled, that would be a game changer. What I'm also really bullish on is reusable systems. I feel confident in saying recycling will never reach like mass mm -hmm. adoption. In New York City, for example, it's it's stuck between 15 and 18 percent. And it's been like that since the 70s. Like if we haven't figured it out by now, I'm just I'm not optimistic about that particular part. And so what I think is really fantastic about 
the reuse space are these new systems where, you know, you get a to-go box and it's made out of aluminum. And when you're finished, you bring it back to Postmates or the restaurant and they clean Mm -hmm. it and then can reuse it. And if those products are made out of glass or aluminum or, or even like a really strong plastic that can be reused and washed, I think that that is truly the wave of the future if if somebody can figure it out. Yeah, I think part of the problem and part of the messed up thing about it is with the way that single-use plastics from petroleum, it's just the price is so bananas because it's not the true cost to the environmental impact and everything else. Like It's really exactly. costing us so much more, but we don't see it because for some reason it's so cheap and it does need to be accessible and people need to be able to afford this and such. But it's like, we just need to be thinking about it differently. Like what if you did, I mean, like in the olden days when you had like a deposit on your milk bottles and then you bring them back and you get that money back. It just can't be that hard. And that's what TerraCycle Loop is doing right now, which I think Mm -hmm. is really, really cool. But that is still really expensive. Like we have to start, I think, at a more expensive price point. And Mm -hmm. then it's it's a complete economies of scale game, right? Like most Mm -hmm. things start, more expensive. And then the more people that adopt them, the prices can go down. But you're right. It's something that we think about all the time in terms of accessibility. And I'm a real believer that you do not have to be of a certain socioeconomic status or demographic to participate in the sustainability world. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. But it's very tough sometimes for that to come through. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. And what we're talking about now, you know, just parallels exactly with, you know, clothing. Mm -hmm. The people just because of the accessibility, they're by the cheapest clothing possible. And without any idea of the true cost, (laughs) to use that phrase, that documentary established in 2015, which is so apt. So it's a vicious cycle. And to our point, and we talk about this a lot, is sustainability is for everybody. It's just not, not for people that have expendable income to spend on these, you know, reusable food containers or whatever. So the thing is, it has to be so desired and demanded. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting, actually, and we love the statistic, Yale has this fantastic, like, climate communication study that comes out every couple of years. And they found that Black people not only are affected more by climate change, which I think we all knew, but they care more about it. Like they're willing Mm -hmm. to change their lives more about it. And when we look at the sustainability space, particularly in consumer products, there's not one product I can think of that's geared specifically towards black people or BIPOC populations or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's all towards these like white upper middle class women. Mm -hmm. And frankly, like we as a group, as a race, and it's obviously not all about race. It's so many other factors, but like, Mm I think that that's really, really interesting. And the other thing that we always like to say is people of lower socioeconomic statuses in many ways have been living more sustainably than anybody else. Like when you build a mansion, even if you get it LEED certified, that is not the same as someone who lives in like a two bedroom house with four children and are making ends meet. Like they're actually, their footprint is so much smaller. And I'm excited for, I think this is the new wave. I studied environmental history in undergrad and I love looking at like the different ways that sustainability shows up in different decades. And I think we sort of have gotten out of the, what I call like Gwyneth Paltrow, like drink a green juice that was $15 with a metal Mm -hmm. straw. And like, this is what it means to be sustainable. And I think (laughs) it's becoming so much more democratized and yeah, frugality for everybody. Yeah, and yeah. It's not, but it's also not like before the Gwyneth wave was this like crunchy green wave, right? Where you had to be like right. camper and like a hippie. And you like smelled bad. Exactly. <laughs> like that was as detrimental, I think, as the Gwyneth world. And now we're realizing like 
this is a, something that literally every single person can participate in and it doesn't really matter who you are. Yeah, that's the thing about the accessibility conversation I like to point out is the irony here is that the most sustainable thing would be to not buy anything. Exactly. Okay. And then, and like <laughs> and it's just the whole conversation is the way that we're dealing with it because we are capitalists is that we're trying to invent new products and get people to engage with them. And so that's how why it feels like it's inaccessible. And in many ways, that's doing so much good because we're introducing all these new ideas and systems along with these new like products and things. But at the same time, that's like also buying things necessarily is not exactly the answer. And then the other part of the accessibility thing, I think, is that it's actually less about access to financial resources and more about access to information. And we're talking about, at the beginning of this conversation, access to the critical thinking to be able to sift through misinformation. So with that, can we talk about greenwashing a little bit and how you guys encounter that and kind of what you do about it? If you do anything? Absolutely. First of all, and this feeds into it, we specifically tied our business model to something that did not mean that we got more money as people bought more things. Like we're all about saying like, do you really need this? We're not like partnering with brands. We're not trying to get people to buy more things that are unnecessary, which I think is really, really helpful. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that we have decided not to do food. We're not rating food because... There's less greenwashing opportunities in food because everything is so regulated, right? It's like what you're ingesting in your body. For whatever reason, the FDA is stronger with things that you're eating versus things Mm -hmm. that you're putting on your body. And so when there's a label... There's no like eco-friendly eggs, right? You're getting like cage-free or free range or something that actually like means something by Mm -hmm. an entity. And in the consumer space, that is not a thing yet, right? There are a couple of certifications that you can get, but generally it is all greenwashing because of these words that are so overused and it doesn't stop anybody from using them, right? Like Mm -hmm. any company literally could paste on eco-friendly And there would be Uh no way to argue that because it doesn't have a definition. So the ones that really frustrate us are sort of two different categories. There are those words that don't really mean much, which is green, eco-friendly. We even don't love sustainable, but we haven't found a good alternative. So that is the one word that we like do use because we think it's Mm -hmm. all encompassing. And then there are words that are actually like incorrect. Chemical free. Our entire planet is made of chemicals, Mm -hmm. right? Chemicals are... Chemicals are great. Without chemicals, we wouldn't exist. (laughs) We would not exist. There's nothing that's not a chemical. So are we talking about like harmful chemicals, synthetic Mm -hmm. chemicals? Like we need to get more granular on what that actually means. Non-toxic, like nothing we're buying is toxic technically, I don't think. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that you have to... Certain like thresholds that you have to meet to be able to use certain ingredients. Yes, some of them have traces of carcinogens and are really scary, but toxicity is something we have to be really, really careful of. And so I think those are the two categories that we're really trying to change the game on. And I think what's difficult is people want those quick words, right? They want to see something and say, okay, I'm only buying things that are chemical free or non-toxic or whatever. But Mm -hmm. what you really need to know is I want to know the area that this was manufactured. I want to know if there were child labor practices. I want to know like the real details. And mm-hmm. back to like what we were saying in the very beginning, you're not going to get that unless you do a ton of research like Mary, you do, right? <laughs> or you have Finch. And so that was a big reason for Finch to move in the direction that we did was like, let's not force people to have to deal with these greenwashing words. Let's do all the research ourselves. I think the other thing that's really interesting is there are always trade-offs. So when we look at carbon 
water impact, biodiversity, ecotoxicity, there are all these different factors. And if something's good in one place, it might mean that it's not great in the other. So the example that I always use is chemical free or or all natural materials. Palm oil is as natural as it gets, right? That is about as detrimental to biodiversity loss as it gets. So I would personally much rather have something with a synthetic chemical that's been tested a million times that shows no harmful side effects than participate in the palm oil industry, which is killing a huge part of the Amazon. But the difficulty is that that's a really nuanced opinion and something that you don't get to unless you are pretty well informed. And so it's so tricky. Mm -hmm. Totally. So what is your, if you don't mind my asking, what is the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, it's a great question. We sell data. We sell two different types of data. So the first is we have found this special middle ground of we're not claiming to do a life cycle analysis on every single product, right? We're not on the factory floors of 200,000 brands, but we also are doing as much data as possible without going to that extra mile. And so we are being able to, for cheaper and at scale, able to get a good enough score for these products, which companies, mostly retailers are really interested in. So if you can imagine Mm. going on walmart.com, Walmart's able to show like, these are the things that have been approved by Finch. Yeah. Or REI, there are a couple of different applications. Like REI is obviously a really responsible company. They Mm -hmm. only want the most sustainable sunscreens. And so we could sell Mm -hmm. them our list of like the top 50 brands that we've rated. Yeah. And they could fill those stores there. So that's one type of data. The second type of data is that through the browser extension, we are gaining really interesting insights in how consumers are thinking about sustainability. So we're seeing firsthand, okay, Emma wanted to buy this body wash. She clicked on this. She looked at the waste impact for 30 seconds, and then she bought this other product. So we would never sell your data, Emma, but we right. would, you know, you would be a woman of a certain age in Washington, yeah. D.C., and you are willing to spend, you know, an extra dollar on sustainable shampoo, but not an extra three dollars, right? So we're getting to that really detailed level of what's making people switch their decisions because right now companies are forced to do focus groups. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars where people say one thing and then at mm-hmm. checkout, it's a very different story. Not because mm-hmm. people lie, but people don't know themselves until they're actually doing it. Totally. And so we're really excited to use this as a lever to go to companies, either the good ones where we're saying, hey, like we're realizing that people care twice as much about the plastic than they do about the biodiversity loss. So when you're marketing, this is how you should be talking about your product. And then for the laggards, we could say, hey, X company, you just lost 20 people because they searched for your product and realized it was a bad score. So they ended up going with another one. Let's work together on how you can make your score better. That's awesome. We're excited. I want to ask you, I think this is related to the greenwashing thing and you don't deal in food. And also it's a very, very polarizing topic, but it's a real bugaboo of mine. And it's that the common understanding or common message out there is that if you eat only plant-based, then you're helping the planet. And so they have come out with these fake meats Mm -hmm. that are 100% industrial, synthetic, all these climatic impacts. And I don't know where you are in that, but, and y'all don't deal in food, so maybe it's not even relevant. No, it's really interesting. We like Um, to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. And I'm actually a vegetarian, but I love meat. So I 
like any chance that I get to have like a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger, I eat it. Like I just, I absolutely love it. For me personally, I love the idea that a cow isn't suffering. So that's like where my main thing is coming from. To be honest, as much as an environmentalist as I am, my reasons for being vegetarian are mostly based around animal welfare. And so Uh for me, I love those, but no, you're absolutely right from, and from like a health standpoint, they're not better because they're filled with a lot of like, we, I couldn't tell you as much as I've eaten them, like what the actual ingredients are in an impossible burger, because it's a lot of like fake stuff. Yeah. So I cannot speak to like what the actual comparison is between, I wrote a blog on it like four months ago, but I'd have to, I'd have to refresh my memories, but I'll send that to you guys. I'd have to refresh my memory on like what the actual numbers are. I'm sure you're right. I just think industrial agriculture is so detrimental that even if it is from like an apples to apples, like detrimental in the same way, the more we can get away from like the model of industrial agriculture, I think particularly involving animals, the better it will be. And I just think that that's sort of where I stand. But I I agree, it's not this brilliant thing that's saving the planet at all. I do think there's like, there's, we have a long way to go. I think we're at the very, very beginning of this like alternative meat, egg world. And I'm excited. I, I think there's promise to it, but I don't think we're there yet. I totally agree that we're not, we haven't figured it out. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Cause the problem that we run into is that there is a model where holistically managed and grazing cows and ruminants like pooping and walking over poop and then the bugs and the ecobiodiversity and like, all that brings. That's actually that system sequesters carbon and it actually like helps the environment. So it's just really interesting that in the broader conversation, the impulse is to just like knock all meat and Mm -hmm. that cuts out a big part of the solution. But there is that part of the conversation too. And again, nuance. I think you're totally right. And I think like, I think regenerative ag, like part of the reason we honestly haven't been in food is because there's so much excitement going on in the space. And like, this is not my expertise. So I'm like, let people just like, like there's so much cool stuff happening. I think regenerative agriculture is, we're getting very close to a point where that could be scaled in a really fantastic way. Mm -hmm. way. And so from an environmental standpoint, completely aligned with you. I think that that's like the way that it goes. And this is like just me personally, so you can keep this podcast or not. But I studied abroad in Tanzania Mm -hmm. and I saw this goat being slaughtered. Yeah. And I could not handle it. Like I could not see, like it was as humane as it could have possibly been. That's so funny. We had the exact same. You did? Yeah. We together were. as a family. We were in Tanzania for summer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually yeah. like, I drank a little bit of the blood because it was this like ritual. Yeah. I could not handle that. And I chose to be a vegetarian a couple of years before that, but that was the real yeah. shift for me where I was like, if I can't handle something being killed, then I don't yeah. want to participate in it at all. And I, I know cows can be treated well and they're doing such good for the environment, whatever. But like, it's something that I just don't want to be a part of. But that's not the answer on like, I don't know what my recommendation would be yeah. formally, right? Given my career. That's so interesting too, because so I do eat meat and it's also important to me that I, and I have, I don't like doing it, but like I have killed an animal. Yeah. I, I know the process. And I think that's so important to like take responsibility for the whole process and be able to do that. And I think I have also been vegetarian at times in my life. And I think that it's fair to be like, again, I'm using animals as an example, but it's also like, what if we thought about this with our plastic products? You have to take responsibility for the full life cycle of the thing that you're consuming or else you're just contributing so much to this cycle of waste. And 
imagine if we all thought about every piece of plastic clamshell that we brought home and we're like, do I want to take responsibility for the beginning of life and end of life of this thing? Oh my gosh, completely, completely. And I think, you know, you've mentioned clothing a couple of times and I Mm -hmm. feel like that's an example of something where, yes, it's easier to buy something from Zara or H&M that's like $20 and you can wear it once and it looks really great and then you throw it away. And it's hard to convince someone that actually you should be spending like $300 on a really well-made sweater that is Mm -hmm. going to last you forever. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing with food where it's a little tangential, but I think of that similar to like people of lower socioeconomic statuses going to McDonald's for dinner because that's all they can afford. And then it's like, well, you're not thinking about like the hospital costs and all these negative externalities that come Mm -hmm. with that, that actually make it more expensive over your Mm -hmm. lifetime. Yeah. So in that way, it's some of the systemic pricing of things. Like why is the McDonald's hamburger $1? And like, who is paying the price, you know? Yeah. Before we get off the whole thing about the Beyond Burger and all that, I want to say that Lizzie, you said a few minutes ago, and as you've expressed, there's two issues. One is a person's personal choice about why or why not they want to eat meat. And that's completely an individual thing. Mm -hmm. The thing that bugs me is that there's, as Emma said, I would argue that the alternative is this regenerative agriculture that has actually been shown through increasingly more data to actually mitigate climate change. So the word out there is any meat at all is damaging to the climate. Yes, industrial beef, our industrial food system, meat production system totally is 100%. No one should be participating in that at all. But that doesn't mean that the next best thing is artificial meat made in laboratories and then includes monocultures and pesticides and all those bad things about agriculture are replicated in this fake meat. So if anyone asks me, I would like to redirect the conversation to say in a a holistic environment where a lot of people are going to eat meat, by choice, and some people aren't, which is fine, then we need to redirect the meat eaters to regenerative agriculture. We also need to redirect vegetarians to regenerative agriculture because a vegetarian diet can be very, very heavy in monocultures, pesticides, Mm -hmm. soil, diminution, and all these things. So anyway, that's my little bandstand. No, I I absolutely completely agree. And I think, you know, what I can contradict myself a little bit, and it's just personal, but like, I I just got through saying like, I'm going to continue to buy Unilever products. So I might as well try to make them as good as possible. Yeah. But with meat, I'm saying like, I'm out. I'm just, I don't want to participate. And I, I recognize that there are like problems associated with that, but I don't know like my mom and I, my mom's a vegetarian as well. She became one a couple of years after I did. I feel like a lot of vegetarians get kind of grossed out by meat and whatever. We love nothing more than drooling over someone eating a hot dog at a baseball stadium. It's so, so weird. And so for us, we just love that taste and it makes us feel really good to know that we're not particularly killing an animal, but 100% we're contributing to yeah. the same system in just like a slightly different way. And I recognize that. Yeah. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because yeah. so, obviously there's no way to perfectly go about all of it. And then also at the same time, as much as like, especially Lady Farmers, Brandon on the Good Dirt podcast, we love to talk about regenerative agriculture. But 
That being said, to scale, it's really hard to eat only meat all the time, every, you know, as much meat as we do. And so, and there are like yeah. seasons and cycles for things and there's yes. like a lambing season, you know what I mean? And so in general, the solution is all going to be less, more mm-hmm. conscientiousness around it, you know, more Better. involvement in the full life cycle. Not, and more expensive. Yeah, probably more expensive yeah. unless you're totally yeah. able to opt out of the system. But the point is, is it's more too. expensive, but the point is you're teaching people that you don't need to have meat three meals a day. Yeah. You have meat, right. you have like a really good steak for dinner and that's it. And you yeah. can eat other, and that's so, so the expense sort of like ends up balancing out if you do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I just think I want regenerative agriculture and regeneratively produced meat to be part of the conversation. And most of the time when this comes up and the word plant-based is used, mm-hmm. you don't hear the other option inserted into the conversation. That's my observation. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Fair. So I just think it should be a three-pronged discussion, not a polarizing two-pronged discussion. Does that make sense? Completely. There is an alternative to the dreadful industrial meat production system that we have going in this country, which is horrible, and we should all refuse it 100%. So. Yeah. And I personally do because I'm fortunate enough to belong to, you know, a small farm CSA. And I, so I know exactly where my meat comes from. I know its journey mm-hmm. from, from birth to my plate. I know how it was raised. Like when I pick up my food, I could go out there and, you know, can see it. And I know where it's processed and all of that. That's a very, very unusual situation. And someone said, Emma said, I think a minute ago, the scaling of that, we've got a long way to go on scalability of something like that. I want to ask you, what is the thing that you're most proud of with Finch or something that you're most excited about, even if it hasn't come to fruition yet? I love the team that I've built. I have a really fantastic team of full-time and part-time employees who are really dedicated to the mission. And it's scary, right? Like I think one of the hardest parts of running your own business is that you don't have anyone to go to who has a better idea of what the right answer should be than you do, right? You can ask people for advice, but nobody has the full picture like yourself. And so it's been really scary to not have, honestly, someone to report to, to be like, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. And I think my team... I've really leaned on them to help me make those decisions. We're very flat. We're not that hierarchical. And, you know, someone a couple of months ago asked, what does success look like for you for Finch? And it's not like being acquired, going public, anything big like that. It's not a certain revenue number. It's like, as long as every single day my team and I are learning and enjoying ourselves in this, then that's all we can ask for, I think. It has to be a day-to-day. We are really enjoying what we're doing. And I'm really proud of the fact that I'm giving, you know, four full-time people an opportunity to live and breathe their mission and use their skills in a really cool way. That's so cool. That's amazing. That's like the new paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. It is. That's huge. And I'm excited about Finch too. Information that you're offering consumers just really gets to the heart of what we're talking about. Like the day-to-day decisions about what you want to invest in and and spend your money on and spend your time on. And it, it's just, it really gets to the heart of it. It gives the everyday consumer the chance to know what the impact of their decisions. Yeah. And that's probably, for whatever reason, it's not what I'm most proud of, but that is by far the best part of the job. And the most fun is that people are, yeah. we're still small enough that people email us on an individual basis and say, what do you recommend for this? Or what's the answer to this? And 
you know, I respond to a lot of those emails. The fact that we are helping people and just providing a resource for them is really awesome that they're now coming to us for these questions and not having to waste 10 minutes scouring the internet. Yeah. How are you guys different from, is it Done Good? Yeah. Done Good's a fantastic company. We really like them. They are more on the brand level. So they talk about what brands are good um, and less mm. about the nitty gritty of each individual factor of the products. Yeah. And they also, they I think they have an extension, but I feel like they are a bit more of a marketplace where you go to Done Good and you're like, mm-hmm. I know that once I'm here, I'm getting good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to doing your regular shopping on what you know, like an Amazon or something that you normally do, like what we, okay. what we offer. I think it's more of a curation. Yes. And what you do is, is really more information for the person that wants the specific information that Done good you can go over there and uh, this has been approved it's almost like a filter yours is more like a transparency tool exactly they also do different product categories so they are a lot of fashion and home goods and we're more mm-hmm. like smaller cpg products mm-hmm. yeah. like i don't think done good would have like what toothpaste to buy yeah right. <laughs> do you know about slow living and does it mean anything to you the term slow living it makes sense, I think, of like slow food and slow fashion mm-hmm. as like the opposite of fast fashion. So yeah, I think of it as this way of living that is more about quality than quantity and making something last for a long time. That's how I think of slow living for sure. Yeah. And do you feel like you experience that in your life or you try to, or do you feel like it's hard? I think I do. There are certain aspects that are really tough. I'm making a big shift in my clothing, I would say, that's becoming much slower. My grandmother died, oh my gosh, 16 years ago. But for whatever reason, starting now, I'm beginning to like I'm the only person in my family who can fit into her clothes. So my sister just got married and I wore a dress of hers from 40 years ago, which was so much fun. I wore a dress of my mom's from like 20 years ago at my best friend's wedding. So I'm starting to reuse a lot of clothes. I haven't dug into as much. I'm really excited to get more into like the consignment secondhand space. Mm -hmm. And then also just simplifying. I see it a lot in fashion. I think the hardest part for me is that I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. Even in COVID, like... Half of my team is in New York City. I lived there for 10 years, so I go back every like six weeks. If I'm invited to a wedding or something like that, it's really hard for me to say no from a climate footprint yeah. um, or for any reason. So that is the one thing where I pay for offsets, but I haven't really found a way to like slow that down a little bit, yeah. if you will. And then in food, you know, we try to buy locally wherever we can. My fiance is really, really invested in this space as well. And so, yeah, we do what we can, but I think it we're far, far, far from perfect. Yeah, of course. Yes. Well, this podcast is all about perfect people. So, <laughs> exactly. so. in fact, we make it a point. It's so, so often we say on here and our guests will say, perfection is the enemy of sustainability. Yeah. That's been said so many times. Yes. And it's so true because it scares people away. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, I, you know, I travel a lot. I can't do that. Or I don't have time to eat real produce or organic produce or can't afford. All the, all these things are barriers to taking even like one tiny little step. And it's infectious. Once you start this in one aspect of your life and you go deeper, then it just becomes a way of being. And it doesn't feel like inconvenience or doesn't feel like a stretch or doesn't feel intimidating. It's like what you want to buy. I mean, you're probably already to the point where you wouldn't, you would refuse a drink in a single use plastic drink. Most of the time, sometimes we still have to do it, you know, but you go, ouch, when you, I don't want to do this, but I can't get out of it right now. But most of the time I'll turn it down, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. 
So what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that metaphorically or literally or just anything that comes to mind. So I think of two things, actually. The first is probably not relevant at all. But I think of whenever you have like dirt on somebody, it's normally Mm. kind of a negative thing. So good dirt. My friends and I love to talk about behind the back compliments. So if someone's like, like if I go to Emma and I'm like, oh my God, Mary and I had the best conversation the other day. She's so smart, whatever. Emma then would go to you, Mary, and be like, Lizzie said the best thing about you. Like I love sharing that information. So that's what I think of as good dirt in like a really cool way. Oh, sweet. (laughs) Probably more relevant is... I think that dirt, you know, this is full circle back to our regenerative conversation. Dirt is the beginning of everything, right? If you don't have a solid foundation, there's really no hope for anything else, right? You cannot expect beautiful plants to grow out of pesticide-filled dirt, right? Or monocultures or things like that. And so I think of good dirt as the beginning of the first step you need to take because everything else almost in life is based off of that. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So good. Is there anything else that you would like to leave with our audience or that you want people to understand about Finch and what you're doing? I think we covered a lot of ground. The only thing I would reiterate is that we are available for any questions, thoughts, etc. We are continuously improving our product. And so if you download it and have feedback, we always want to hear it. Um, And we could even set up a user interview for 20 minutes if that's something that anybody would be interested in. So I think that's the main thing is just like be in touch because we love talking to our early adopters and everybody is early at this point. And yeah, let us know what you think. Do you still have the newsletter? We still, so we have a newsletter that comes out every Friday. I don't have the personal newsletter anymore. It's been morphed into Finch, but yeah, you can probably find some archives. It was called The Green Lizard back in the day. Oh, cute. But now it's all Finch. Great. Are you Instagram, website, all that? Absolutely. So it's choosefinch.com. You can download our extension. We also have wise guides that I didn't mention where for every category, we'll have like, all right, here are the top four things you really need to pay attention to when you're buying detergent, for example. So those are really useful. Even if you don't have the extension on Amazon, you can take it to the store and and make some important decisions that way. Our Instagram is at Choose Finch. Our Twitter is at Use Finch. And then I have a personal Twitter that's za 188 that I'm trying to sort of build up. So if you want to follow me there, I would really appreciate it. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it was great, great having you and we'll be in touch. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.